As we continue to follow the prophet Elijah, this will be our theme, is turning our hearts back to the Lord. Last week we began at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 17 um, with just those first six verses, and today we'll pick up just a little bit of the next piece of Elijah's story. 1 Kings 17 is one of the books of history, so after you get through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges, then you get through Ruth and then into 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And so these are in the books of history in the Old Testament. Last week, we were introduced to even this idea of a prophet. Prophets in Old Testament Israel worked alongside of priests and kings. There was these three offices that were meant to bring all of the nation before God. The priests led the people in the worship of God. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people to the Lord. The king ruled over God's people, both to make sure the law of God was followed and that God's people were cared for in the ways instituted by the law of the Lord. But the prophets are sent by the moving of the Holy Spirit, by the word of the Lord that ties all of the prophets together, and the prophets more often than not are sent to correct people to bring their hearts back to God when they have strayed. And so just as the prophets Samuel and Nathan had confronted King Saul and King David, now in the book of Kings, Elijah the prophet has been sent to correct King Ahab and to get him to lead back to God so that the people may be led back to God by their king. Ahab in particular got involved in the worship of Baal, which is the storm god who makes it rain. And so people had been worshiping God. And instead of worshiping the living God, they had replaced the living God with Baal. And whenever it rained, they gave thanks to Baal. Whenever there was a drought, they prayed to Baal, no longer to the living God. And so last week, Elijah was sent by the Lord to confront Ahab and tell him that no longer would it rain. There would be a drought as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. And so the drought has begun and the drought has continued. But Elijah the prophet confronted King Ahab and and now he's off hiding in a cave. He went from there to the Kareth Ravine where God would take care of him, that he would drink from the brook and that ravens would come and feed him. So today we pick up at 1 Kings 17 beginning at verse 7. But before we do so, let's pray. Lord, may your word come to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. May your word come to us and give strength to the weak, conviction to the uncertain, hope to the destitute, confidence to the timid, healthy hesitation to the headstrong, humility to the proud, and a fitting breath of life to all God's people. May your word come to us, O Lord, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. First Kings, chapter 17. Verses, one, verses 7 through 16. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, him being Elijah. 
Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there is food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Apoptosis. I'm going to start today with this word, and this, although it is uh, Greek in its origin, this is not some theological fancy term. Uh, This isn't a New Testament term. Apoptosis is probably, it may be ringing a bell for you, if anywhere, in high school biology. Apoptosis is a normal regulatory development process. It's part of our normal development, and it involves healthy cell death. I'll admit I'm just a little bit intimidated because we do have some like medical students sitting right up front this morning, and so I at least know I have the pronunciation right. We'll see if I get the rest of my understanding of apoptosis correct. But apoptosis is part of how we develop as people. It's a natural process, and it is, in essence, getting things out of the way so that we may be fully who we are. Uh, consider that when you're forming, you are kind of a gelatinous blob of cells. We're a little bit more rounded off. And so when you're being formed, you're kind of a a blobby-looking thing. But by apoptosis, this fine-tuned process of healthy cells dying away, the form of your face takes shape. The fine details of your face take place during development through this apoptosis of cells leaving. So if you think you have a fine face... You can thank apoptosis for those fine details. I thought it was funny. (laughs) But also the same thing with your hands. Your hands, imagine putting Tupperware over your hands or putting your hands in a jar. That wouldn't work all that well. But you need all of those connected digits to have apoptosis, this process of cell death, come through. And all of these cells, as they leave, it's like carving out your hand. And so without apoptosis, we would end up with either clumsy fists or maybe webbed fingers. We would be a lot more like ducks. But through apoptosis, even the spaces between our fingers get separated. Those cells leave, and then we grow use of our hands. 
This is a process by which we become human as we're intended to become. It's part of God's amazing design of how our bodies are meant to work. And I think there's something profoundly spiritual about this process of apoptosis. Because it's the dying away of that which doesn't belong, that which would bind us up, keep us from being who we are. It's the dying away of all of that, ridding ourselves of that which we don't need so that we can be who we were meant to be, so that we can look the way we were meant to look, so that we can use our hands and our bodies the way we were meant to use them. There's something spiritual about that. It's like cleaning house, getting rid of the things that are hindering you, getting rid of the things that are holding you back or, or tying your hands together. Without apoptosis, as my high school biology teacher told us, our heads would basically look like potatoes. Now, we could add Mr. Potato Head features to them, but apoptosis carves away that which we don't need so that we can look the way we're meant to look. But it's a process of death. It's a process of dying away that brings us to who we are. Spiritually speaking, to use this analogy a little bit loosely, and here's where I know I'm just going to depart on any kind of accuracy. Sorry, Eric and others who are medically trained. Apoptosis, this process of dying in ourselves, happens to us. That we can see who we are as God sees us, that our hands can be free to do the work of the Lord, that by spiritually growing, by dying to ourselves and by living for God, we become both more willing and able to see ourselves as God sees us. We become more willing and able to use our hands, to use the talents that God has given us in the ways that God meant for us to use them. But the other result is that that which clouds our vision is eaten away, is dying off so that we can have a clearer picture of who God is. God doesn't need apoptosis. God is already perfect. But we need to have the things that hinder us die off and fall away from us so that we can see God's face more clearly and so that we can see the hand of God at work. Often in Scripture, we have this language of the face of God, that it was the desire to see God's face shining upon us. We hear that in the, in the benediction from the book of Numbers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift his countenance or his face towards you. The prayers in the Psalms of, Lord, do not turn your face away from me because we want to see God's face. We want to know that God's face is looking towards us and is shining upon us. This we cannot do if we are spiritually hindered by things that cloud over our heads, that keep our hands tied. But to participate in God's kingdom work requires us to die away to all those things that hinder us. To be brought simply to God, to know who we are, and to be able to see God more clearly. This happens individually to us, and it also happens corporately as a church, but also as we follow Elijah and later Elisha through the Old Testament, it's meant to happen at a national level as well. And the drought that Elijah prophesied to Ahab is like the apoptosis of Israel, it is the dying away of all of the other things that were clouding their judgment, that were holding them back, that were hindering them from being the people that God called them to be. 
They were a nation elect to be blessed, to be a blessing, to worship God in faithfulness. But they need to let some things die off. Some things need to be carved out from the nation of Israel for them to serve God in spirit and in truth. And so the prophet predicts this drought. As surely as the Lord lives, it will not rain. There will be no dew on the ground. And this apoptosis of Israel is meant to kill off things like Baal worship. People who are worshiping Baal as the god of storm and rain, well, now their faith in Baal is starting to die because it has not rained. Things are getting dry. And so their faith in Baal has started to shake and die off like cells being carved off of our bodies. Their prosperity has also died off. It is a drought, so there is scarce food. Where they used to make their living, both for themselves and for profit, on being the breadbasket of the region, now the prosperity of Israel is failing because there is no rain. And their self-reliance is diminishing because Baal is not coming through for them. Baal is showing to not be of any help. And in this way, the people's faith in Baal begins to die because they're finding out that Baal is dead because he was never alive in the first place. The end result of this apoptosis of Israel is that Israel might see the face of God again and that they might see God's hand at work And so the miracles that Elijah performs, the pronouncements that Elijah makes against Ahab, the king, all of these are to bring this apoptosis, this spiritual dying away, so that the people might once again see God's face, that they might see and notice his hand at work. This is needed for Ahab, certainly, but for the entire nation that has been led astray to worship false gods. And so now, as things begin to die away, God begins to show up in strong and powerful ways to show his face that he is still looking at his people and to show his hand at work through great and powerful ways that we'll get to later on with confrontations of prophets and burnt offerings, but also through the simple provision of God's hand at work in providing for a widow and her son. The greatest and least of these are all being viewed by the face of God. Because a drought hits everyone. Droughts don't take exceptions to certain people over others. And if you have ties to a farm, you know how this goes. Droughts are equal opportunity for every single person. And so, yes, the drought hits King Ahab The drought is hitting the prophets of Baal. It's affecting them, those who led the nation of Israel astray. The drought is affecting them. But the drought affects everyone. It affects Israel as a nation. The drought, in our text this morning, is affecting the Kareth ravine where Elijah has taken refuge, that even the brook that he was drinking from has now dried up. And this drought goes so far north as Sidon in the region of Sidon, where Zarephath is. The drought is affecting everyone. The face of God has perhaps been hidden, but the hand of God is beginning to move and work to bring the people back to him. So Elijah, after the brook dries up, after the Kareth ravine is dry, God's word comes to Elijah, and he sends him north 
And on this map, there's some uh, blocks of text. You don't have to worry about reading them. But Elijah was actually down towards the bottom, right above that very bottom block of text. Elijah was down there. And where he's getting sent to is the very top of the map. That top text box is pointing to the city of Zarephath. So Elijah was hidden reasonably down for pretty far south, and he's hiding from Ahab. And 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 10 tells us that Ahab is looking for Elijah. He's looking for him in earnest because he wants to kill him and end this drought. But Elijah is sent from basically the bottom of our map to the top of our map, and it's quite a hike. I wonder if Elijah would be a little bit annoyed at the amount of a trip that he's going to have to take to take a long hike outside in the desert during a drought. You would be thirsty, it would be dusty, and there would be no water. This would be a difficult trek. I wonder if Elijah, the word of the Lord came to him, and he felt maybe just a little bit annoyed that God was sending him a lot further away than what he thought. But consider, if you drive through the country during a drought, the further you go, the more extent of the drought you see. And Elijah has seen that this drought that he prophesied to Ahab is not only affecting Israel, but it has stretched all the way north to Sidon, all the way to the place where Baal worship is central, in Sidon, Zarephath, in the city of Tyre. But when Elijah arrives at last in Zarephath, being thirsty from a long trip, water is scarce, he finds the widow whom God has ordained. And he asks her a simple question, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? There's someone else who asks a woman for water at a well. We might know this story from the New Testament. In John 4, when Jesus is thirsty from a long journey and he arrives at a well and asks a woman for water, Elijah and Elisha will continue to foreshadow Christ's work and ministry the further we go through 1 Kings. But Elijah asks this woman for water, which is no small favor, given that it is a drought. But verse 11 tells us as she was going to get it, implying she was going to give him water. But he called also and then asked for one more favor, as if asking for drought water Asking for water during a drought wasn't enough. He asks her, please, for a piece of bread. Prophets can be contentious people, but they also seem to have nice manners. Bring me, please, a piece of bread. But this is where things get honest for the widow, that she too has suffered, that her life is dying away before her. And when Elijah asks for bread, she replies, As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. And she tells Elijah that she's making a last meal for her son and for herself, that they may have this meal and then die. Because the spiritual apoptosis that's happening, this drought is affecting everyone. And this woman is ready to die. But the hand of God intervenes at just the right moment that Elijah is sent to her as she is on her way to prepare her last meal before death. There's something about the way God works, that God's face is revealed, 
that just when all hope is lost, just when we are most desperate, just when we think we have lost everything, God shows up. I wonder how she said those words to Elijah, as surely as the Lord your God lives. I wonder how widespread it was, this confrontation between Elijah and Ahab. Now, there was no Facebook, Twitter, or C-SPAN in the Old Testament, so we don't have a call record of how many people were there when Elijah confronted Ahab. It wasn't teleprompted. Nobody tweeted it afterwards. But people do talk. And where they may not have had social media in the Old Testament, they were social people. And they had city gates. City gates were people gathered for legal transactions, for transactions of business, and to hear word from one town to the next. This happened in the city gates. People gathered around wells to talk to one another. And during a drought especially, everyone would be at the wells because there is no, not enough water in the streams and brooks to feed people. Everyone would be at the wells. And so you wonder if you would have heard about Elijah confronting Ahab. You wonder if you were in one of the drought-parched areas of the ancient Near East during this time, if you had asked, do you know why this drought is happening? And maybe someone from another village had heard that a prophet of the Lord confronted Ahab and he brought this drought upon us. All the same, Elijah shows up in the moment of highest desperation for this woman. And he tells her simply, don't be afraid. This woman who says, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she is not an Israelite. She is Sidonian. She lives in Zarephath. This woman is not an Israelite, but God's hand is going to assist her. And God's face has not turned away, even from a woman of Sidon, who probably grew up worshiping Baal. But her faith in Baal has died away. But there might be just a hint of blame as well. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is no water. Therefore, we are starving. But nonetheless, Elijah says, don't be afraid. There's two types of fear, right? There's healthy fear and unhealthy fear. Healthy fear is the kind of fear that makes us jump out of the way when something fast moves past us. Healthy fear is the kind of fear that makes us afraid of snakes and spiders, especially snakes. Spiders, we can handle those for the most part. Those are healthy fears. Healthy fear also brings about fear of the Lord. Healthy fear leads to reverence. Unhealthy fear is that of terror. Unhealthy fear is that of shock and awe. Unhealthy fear is that which makes us fear for our own life. Ahab has no healthy fear for God. Ahab has no reverence for God. Ahab has no healthy fear that makes him reverent towards God in the same way that we are reverent when we come to God's table. The woman, reverence aside in question, she has that unhealthy fear of losing her life that no one will provide for her, that she's going to starve to death. And yet Elijah comes and says, don't be afraid. Elijah makes a big ask of her. He asks her to feed him before her and her son. And that if she does, she will be provided for. 
that God's hand will clearly intervene right into the laws of physics and tamper with the amount of materials in that jar and in that jug that there will be enough flour and enough oil for salvation for her and her son, that there will be enough. First, she gives to Elijah. She gives what the word of the Lord asks. And then she is provided for. First, she has to give and sacrifice in a scary time of scarcity and give away that she will be taken care of. You might know that old pithy phrase, give to God what's right, not what's left. This is the woman giving all that she has left to Elijah. But in the giving of the flour and of the oil to make a small cake for Elijah, her salvation is at hand. And the face of God turns towards her and is gracious to her, showing mercy and compassion even to the lowly widow and her son, people who would be forgotten by anyone else. But God shows his face. God shows his hand at work and provides for the widow and for her son and chooses her of all people to provide for the prophet. You would think that God would send Elijah to a wealthy person who would have enough land that they would have their own well. But instead, God sends Elijah to the widow, the widow who had nothing else, that God chose her to provide for his prophet. Everything else is dying away. There is no hope or trust or faith in almost anything at this point because things are just desperate and people are afraid. And it is in that moment that God shows up, that God shows his hand, shows his face, and reveals himself to the people again starting out small with the widow, and it will grow over time until a majestic showdown with the prophets of Baal. The entire region is undergoing spiritual apoptosis, a dying away of cells. Doing okay on that? Okay, good. Thanks, Eric. But I wonder for us, when we also need a certain amount of apoptosis in our lives, things that need to die away, that it makes room for God, that it re-centralizes God when maybe there's too many things obstructing our vision, there's too many things tying our hands. When that happens, some of us has to die away, that we can see God's face clearly, that we can see God's hand at work. Galatians describes a process of what it is to live by the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. This is a process of dying to ourself, to knowing that we don't live under the law, but that it is God's Spirit and God's Spirit alone that will strengthen and nourish us, that it is God's Spirit that will guide us and lead us, that it is God's Spirit just as God's Spirit was moving and active and sent the prophet of Elijah to Ahab and then to Zarephath. It is that same Spirit of God that we have, that we possess, that is with us each and every day. It is the Spirit of God that will never leave us or forsake us. But sometimes to really be in touch with that Spirit of God, other things need to die away first. We need some apoptosis. We need the things that hold us back, the things that bind our hands, that obscure our vision of who God is to die away, that the face and hand of God may be clear again and that we may be willing and able to live for the Lord. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. 
For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I wonder if we read those lists and feel like we're, we're doing pretty good, that there's some big bad sins in that list that we're really glad that they don't affect us. But I wonder if when we think that way, if that's the first thing that God needs to chip it away at in our souls, that this list does apply to us. That maybe we don't have an idol to bail, but that we do have idols in our lives. The fact that jealousy and envy are in this list. Have you ever just seen something that someone else has that you really want? Fits of rage is in here. This list is for everyone who has a temper, selfish ambition, and all kinds of other divisions. This list is for us because God is not finished with us in carving away that which holds us back. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. When everything else has been eaten away, when everything else that holds us back has died, we are left with the fruit of the Spirit, that we can see God's face, that we can see God's hand at work, and that we can join God in God's good work.